because it demonstrates the universal bonding that literature makes possible. Along with Shelley, of course, our vital concern with women's issues uh, drew us even closer. Dr. Chabon was educated. Can you all hear? Is it too much competition? Huh? Is it better if I stand up? Wait. Okay. All right. Thank you, Sarah. Any further instructions will be most welcome because I can. Uh, sit down. Sam. And show my face. Okay. Dr. Shaban was educated at Damascus University in Syria and earned a master's and a doctoral degree at Warwick University in England. Her dissertation topic was, as you might guess, Shelley, specifically his influence on the Chartist poets. She served as lecturer and then associate professor of English literature in the English department of Damascus University. She also served for a time as department chair. She is currently a Fulbright Scholar at Duke University, where she's working on research and development of Arab women novelists, the prism and the promise of Arab culture. Shaban was a translator for the Syrian foreign minister and did simultaneous interpreting at the United Nations and at meetings in 20 countries. She's currently the editor of Al-Adab Al-Ajnabiyya, a foreign literature quarterly published by the Arab Writers <coughs> Union in Damascus. Dr. Shaban's book, both right and left-handed, here, here is the book. Always show the book. Right? Um, uh, the subtitle is Arab Women Talk About Their Lives, has been internationally recognized as a major work essential to the understanding of women in the contemporary Arab world and in this uh, connection, I recall something that uh, Gwendolyn Brooks wrote to her first editor about wanting to portray Negroes, as they were then called, uh, Negroes as people, not merely as the exotics that they had too often uh, been depicted as. And um, I think that uh, Shaban's book accomplishes this for Arab women. Uh, the book was published by the Women's Press of London, and it will soon be reissued by in Indiana University Press. Her second book, Poetry and Politics, Shelley and the Chartist Poets, will be published in Damascus in the fall. Dr. Shaban has published widely in both English and Arabic, notably in the Keats Shelley Journal, the Keats Shelley Bulletin, and Al-Mawqif Al-Adabi, among other periodicals. She is widely sought as a speaker, and we are indeed fortunate to have her with us tonight for uh, many reasons, as I have already uh, mentioned. And it is with great pride and pleasure that I present to you our distinguished sister in literature, Busaina Shaban. Thank you very much. After all this introduction, which I hardly deserve, I shouldn't really complain about cornea abrasion. It seems so irrelevant uh, at the moment. 
I would like first to ask um, Penn to thank Penn and to thank the Women Committee in Penn to give me this honor and this opportunity to be here. Penn in the third world in, and everywhere outside the United States is the only insurance that writers have. You don't know how grateful we are to Penn. Many writers would not dare write if they didn't know that Penn exists. And this is why I felt today I could not refuse to come here, even if the doctor asked me to go to hospital, which he did, because I was invited by Penn. William Sinclair from London's Penn asked me whether Penn sometimes causes any problems for writers, whether the approach might be inappropriate for writers in the third world. Writers in the third world appreciate your efforts, appreciate your concern, and they are extremely grateful to you. And I am extremely happy to have the honor and the opportunity to express not just my gratitude, but their gratitude too. The, um, the question of Arab women writing is quite a wide subject, and I didn't know really where to start. My current project is to try and construct the writings of Arab women novelists from 1860 until 1990. But I would like to start by giving just a few words about the writings of Arab women in general and explain to you the framework in which I'm trying to construct this current work of mine. Arab women writers have been writing for the last 14 centuries. In the sixth century, we had Arab women poets and Arab women critics. They used to stand in what is called now Saudi Arabia, which used to be called Bilad al-Hijaz, women, to declaim their poetry, to listen to men's poetry, and then to act virtually as literary critics and give the prize for the best poem. They were extremely active in opening their literary salon from the sixth century, where men and women would come, would read their writings, which was mostly poetry, and then the hostess would act as a judge, which again in the final analysis made the hostess the literary critic who, who gives the prize to the best work presented. And the half century before Islam, which we call al-Jahiliya, which is a pre-Islamic period, I'll tell you this anecdote about a woman critic. She is called Um Jindo. Um in Arabic means mother. And we have the habit of not calling people in their names, but in the names of their children. So my daughter is Nahid. People do not call me Buthayna, they call me Um Nahid, which means the mother of Nahid, and it's supposed to show respect. And the father is called also in the name of his child. So the, the name of the woman poet is Um Jindo, and she is the wife of the best known Jahiliyat poet, Jarir. One day, her husband had a kind of poetic contest with another poet, 
and they could not reach an agreement about whose poem was the best. The other poet said, I accept the opinion of your wife. Her opinion in poetry is very valid, and we go and we declaim our poetry to her. So they went to her, and they declaimed their poems, and she preferred not her husband's poem, the other poem, and she gave really meticulous reasons for preferring the other poem, an extremely elaborate literary analysis of the poem, which was, I thought, extremely convincing. But that, that's not what her husband thought. And he divorced her immediately after that. So at least one woman critic in the sixth century who got a divorce because of her opinion in literature. Uh, so the, the, the tradition really went on. And although what has been recorded of Arab women poetry does not show the the span of the poetry. Um, we have many reasons to believe, and we are just in the process of constructing that history, that Arab women poets not only wrote eulogies as the men like to think or as Arab critics like to present, and not only wrote platonic love poetry, but they were extremely active in writing poetry, letters, political, sociological, all kinds of domains they were involved in. One particular poet, Walada bint al-Mustakfi, who ran her literary salon in the 12th century, and the Lucia, is supposed to have nurtured the talent of the most well-known Arab poet, Ibn Zaydun. Now, all male critics say she was a very platonic poet, and I'm just going to cite to you a few lines of the poem she wrote to Ibn Zaydun. She said to him, when darkness comes, expect me. It is for your sake that I wish there were no sun or moon or stars. It's not very platonic, is it? <laughs> Another woman, poet, who wrote, who cited poetry, who played her guitar and who sang, her name is Aliya bint al-Mahdi, also, she was in the 12th century. She wrote, I'm sitting now, sipping my wine on my own. What a shame. There's no man who's good enough to have wine with me. <laughs> so it is really this history of Arabic women literature that I am trying to construct in the first chapter of my book. Afterwards, I would be dealing with more textual analysis of Arab women's novels. Unfortunately, most of the criticism we have in Arabic has marginalized what women wrote, has completely misunderstood, misinterpreted, read the works upside down. So um, I'm going to read you a section of my second chapter. And I would very much appreciate your response. I am really counting on your response because I'm still at the early stages of my work, and uh, as I have such a select uh, audience and such a great opportunity to talk to you, I thought I would like to read you um, a small section of my second chapter, which you might not think it's too small. And afterwards, I will be delighted to talk about any issue you would like. 
the name of the section is the quest for self. I will see how my eye go. If I can't carry on reading, I will hand in to a friend of mine. But you inspired me and I feel okay now. Um, if anything I do in the way of writing novels or whatever I write isn't about the village or the community or about you, then it isn't about anything. I'm not interested in indulging myself in some private exercise of my imagination, which is to say, yes, the work must be political. Toni Morrison. The trivialization of Arab women's writings has always been done under the pretext that their scope is limited and their imagination is unresourceful. Critics often reiterate each other's judgment that Arab women writers have failed to break out of the boundaries of home, children, marriage, and love in their writings. And consequently, they have failed to touch on the social and political paradigms of their countries. Hence, the paltry references made to them in literary criticism are in keeping with the value of the topics of the topics, I'm sorry, they had tackled. In light of this argument that informed most of the criticism of Arab women's writings, women's literature is still used mostly as a pejorative term. This explains why most Arab women writers still resist the classification of their literature as women's literature. Excuse me. Recently, in March 1990, Dr. Hamad Lahmadani read a paper at a conference held in the city of Fas, Morocco, entitled The Monolithic Writing of Arab Women's Talk. The title of his paper is, is insulting. He used haki, which in Arabic means female chatter. That's at best. In this paper, he looked at Nawal Sadawi's Imra'atan Femra'a, which is not haki, which is not chatter, which is a very well-known work of fiction, translated to so many languages. But his conclusion covered all women novelists. He affirmed to his audience that women's novelistic techniques, I'm quoting, are still monolithic, that they have a single personal voice in comparison with the different voices men use in their novels, and the multiple visions they display. He explained this by reasoning that women are so occupied with their own personal problems that the whole world passes them unnoticed. <laughs> they are poor things, aren't they? Excuse me, because the paper is so long, I have just to flip through some pages. In this paper, I shall argue that early women novelists in the 1940s and 50s were deeply aware of their society's ills, which are epitomized in its attitude to women. Their endeavors aimed at undermining dogmas and misconceptions and at changing men's palatous attitude towards women. They were acting on the premise that changing social attitudes is the first prerequisite for any social or political change. Men were not seen as the adversaries. Rather, they were portrayed as the victims of wrongly conceived and deeply erroneous images of women. Hence, the novels were directed at a male audience rather than at a female readership. An explicit, an explicit effort was made to explain to men that the relationship between the two sexes should not be seen in terms of gain and loss, 
superior and inferior, or strong and weak. In their literary works, they, were con they constructed a vision of a world where parity and equality between the two sexes reflect positively on both of them. Their other present argument is that any social change has to be spearheaded by change in social attitudes towards women. What they strive to achieve is neither superiority nor authority, but a place for all women to function as sane individuals who can positively contribute to all, to all life spheres. Their first pressing need is to liberate women from the aberrant concept of women as sex or woman as body, and to educate men about the rich dimensions women's, of women's lives. In their effort to change women's position within the family, excuse me, they were trying to undermine the most imperious unit in an oppressive patriarchal system, the family structure that involves the, subor the subordination of women. Interestingly, in none of their works did Arab women novelists advocate either separatism or dissolution of the family. Rather, they are bent on changing attitudes so that women might have the freedom to function on equal footing with men. The novels that compose the material for this chapter will be studied under the heading Victims and Victors. And I believe the women in these novels were victims and victors. For most of us, women are our forced storytellers. It was through the stories related to us by our mothers or grandmothers that we got our first ideas of love, justice, sacrifice, and loyalty. But since the, but since the publication of A Thousand and One Nights, this entertaining educational activity has enjoyed a more significant role in women's lives. Shahrazad demonstrated to all women the power of storytelling and the effect it has on men. It's through engaging the King Shahriyar in a daily discourse and keeping him in suspense that seems effectively to have preempted his earlier decision to wed a virgin daily and execute her. His, his decision was the result of his discovery that his wife was an adulteress. Shahrazad decided to save women this violence through her shrewd manipulation of discourse. For the first time, language saves women from physical violence, and the use of the word absolves them from the curse of their sexuality. The word becomes a weapon to defend women's body from male violence. I'm sorry about this, but I don't want to sit down, so I'm quite... Uh, in, the 19, in the late 1940s, when Widar Sakakini was living in Cairo, the center of Arab enlightenment at the time, many Arab writers were belittling women in their publications and stifling them. Tawfiq al-Hakim, for example, who is one of the most acknowledged Arab writers in the 20th century, portrays women in his novel Al-Ribat Al-Muqaddas, The Holy Bond, as man's possession with no social, economic, or even personal rights. Abbas Mahmoud al was a reputed misogynist. 
as for Ihsan Abdul Qaddus, women are mere sexual bodies who provide men with pleasure and children to inherit them and ensure the continuum of private property. In his novel Alive, Sinners, Yusuf Idris validates women's existence only through their possession of a sexual body that defines all their moral and social codes. Nagil Mahfouz, in his novel Bidaya wa Nihaya, published in the same year as Sakakini's Arwab al Khatub, which I'm going to examine here, examines the complex motifs which lead men to denounce and victimize women. He finds the sight of the male character, Hassanin, that of a victim tyrant, who instead of trying to change the conditions oppressing him, strives to avenge himself from the class responsible for his oppression through penetrating one woman from that class. Quote, when I penetrate her, he thinks to himself, every part of her warm body will call me master. This is all I wish in life. If I penetrate her, I would have penetrated her entire class. The character of Mustafa Saeed in Tayyab Saleh, a classic, Mausim al-Hijra al-Shamal, the season of migration to the north, is typical of the child and victim whose tyranny and victimization are best expressed in his distorted conceptions of women and sex. He surrounds himself with mirrors in his bedroom in order to imagine that by invading one English woman, he is invading the whole English class. Thus, a sexual relationship with a woman acquires here significant racial and class dimensions. Yet when Arab women writers challenge this pervasive image of women as sexual bodies or as wives and mothers with no other dimension to their lives, they are charged with being limited to their own sex and failing to embrace, I'm sorry about this, and failing to embrace the paradigms of social and political lives of their own countries. What I shall argue is that Arab women novelists saw the issues concerning their gender to be central to the social and political problems in which their countries are drowned. Women, therefore, saw in their own salvation the unbinding of their own peoples. The dilemma of Arwa, the heroine in Widat Sakakini's Arwa Bintul Khatub, is that of a woman who refuses to prostitute her body for social convenience. On refusing to grant her brother-in-law away sexual pleasure while her husband, Nu'man, was out of town, she is accused of being an adulteress, brought to court, sentenced, and stoned. This was the beginning of a series of rape attempts, which at one point pushed her to kill her attacker. She stood motionless in disbelief at what social injustice has made of her, quote-unquote. All her ordeals stand to show that there is an obdurate gap between her image of herself and the society's image of her. She recognizes one source of her affliction. She thought about the tragedies her beauty had brought upon her and wondered how to coarsen her looks and impair her feminine attraction. But the other moral fatal source of her ordeal is the social assumption that all women are potential adulteresses and all of them enjoy being raped no matter what they say. When she speaks, she is accused of lying and when she keeps silent, 
her silence is taken to signify consent. Alwa realizes that there is a problem of communication which makes any discourse with her adversaries pointless. Most of the men who try to rape her are so immersed in their prejudice against women that she could not envisage a way of putting her case across. She is in a state of shock and disbelief at how men in all places at all times can only prove their masculinity through their possessions of women's bodies. The conditions she found herself in are so grinding she is not able even to scream. Alice Walker Celius speaks not just for herself but for Arwa too when she says, I can't speak. Every time I open my mouth, nothing come out but a little bird. This did not prevent Hassan al-Khatib, a prominent literary critic in the Arab world, from finding Arwa fierce, anti-male, and Freudian. Don't know how he found that. This Freudian bent, he adds, should be pursued in the life of the author, not in the life of the heroine, in her childhood and her experience with men. Widat Sakakini is married to a colleague of Hussam al-Khatib, who is an author and professor at university, and in Arab terms has an immaculate record of being a moral woman. You know. Across Arab countries, Arwa is only seen as a body, and various attempts to rape her recur. Her body and beauty become her curse, and turn her into a prey in men's eyes. Like Alice Walker's heroines, she turns to God after failing to find a place on earth where she can function. But her inner purity and resilience remain unshaken, and eventually she becomes a saint who can heal. Albaid, who has turned blind, comes to her with her husband Norman beseeching her to restore his eyesight. Her other assailants also arrive. She recognizes them. But when they know who she is, they learn something more. They realize how mistaken they were to harass her and to accuse her of being an adulteress. When Arwa started to speak, quote, they were so ashamed of themselves, none of them could lift his eyes and look Arwa in the face. They, had, they held their breath, each of them secretly wishing, her, wishing he had died before coming here to meet their victim, who is a living martyr sent by God to expose their mischief and the enormity of their ignorance of woman's nature, end of quote. Bereaved and disconcerted, men kiss Arwa's feet, asking her forgiveness. Commenting on this point, an Arab critic, a man of course, wonders why does Widat Sekakini make men kiss women's feet? Is this a compensation of her heroine's sexual frustration? or an escalation to it from below. The obscenity of such a comment, and many other similar ones, reveal Al-Khatib's sexist attitudes, not just to Sakakini, but to all Arab women novelists. Sakakini is a serious writer whose work cannot be stifled by such personal malignancy. Now a man tries to win his wife back, she excuses herself to say her prayers when her soul departs. She is mourned publicly, and on her grave, the, they write the epitaph. Here forever rests woman's sanctity that has been forever defiled by unfair men. The fact that the novel ends here is significant. It stresses the fact 
that the message is conveyed and the truth is known and that's all what the author hoped to achieve. Sakakini's biographies of two exceptional women, Rabia al-Adawiyye, which was translated to English under the title First Among Sufis with an introduction by Doris Lessing, and Maiziadas, confirm our understanding of her novel, Arwa. In First Among Sufis, Sakakini again constructs the life of another woman saint, this time a real one, who lived in the 8th and 9th century, who was a fourth unwanted female baby in a family who had no boys, but whose origin and even tomb are now claimed by the peoples of Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Palestine. They, they almost fight over where she is. Her unorthodox, uncompromising views brought her hardships and, adversity, and adversities during her lifetime. But once she died, her simple house and grave become religious shrines. Here again, men are made to consider the spotless life of a woman who was very much wronged by men. As for other women, she has opened a way for them and proved that the birth of a woman should not be lamented. She has proved that women have souls, they have pride, dignity, and self-esteem. Sakakini's concluding paragraph of this biography reads as follows. Rabia realized an ideal. She pointed it out for the righteous and the sincere. She lived that ideal with vision and knowledge and truth. She left for women an open door that was honorable and worthy of esteem, never to be closed again. She was a woman heading the ranks of the dedicated ones, and she became their living proof, both in worshiping and in loving. Sakakini's biography of Maiziyadi is another example. Terribly sorry about this. Having running nose. Sakakini's biography of Maiziyadi is another serious and compassionate effort to absolve another wronged woman. Indeed, her book Maiziyadi, her life and work, incidentally, Maiziyadi is a Lebanese woman who lived in Egypt and who was running her literary salon and who has a very similar life to Virginia Woolf. They accused her of being mad, took her to rescue houses, and she had a very tragic death at the same year as Virginia Woolf in 1941. She arrived in Egypt only two years after Ziadi's sad death, and this proved to be Sakakini's lifelong regret. Even in 1989, Sakakini told me, had I only been lucky enough to see her, I still can't believe my bad luck. Yet she talked at length to everyone who knew May closely, read all her works over and over again, visited her house, and constructed a biography that is a creative and heartening account of a writer, sister, and comrade in common struggle. Reading the book, one can feel Sakakini's heart beating with May's happiness and pounding with her fears, till she imagined that May's spirit inspired her pen. Sakakini writes, if it were not for fear of being accused of spiritual incarnation, physical rebirth, and philosophical solutions, I would have claimed that my soul, which accompanied her memory since her departure, is writing with her pen about her, joining me in defending her from malice, and awarding her the place her work and talent have long earned her. As Yada has devoted her time and talent 
to ensure that Wardat al-Yazji, Aisha Taymuriyah, and Bahithat al-Badiyah are placed in our literary history where they belong. Sakakini also made a sincere effort to dispel the mist, the mist surrounding Ziada's life and award her the literary status she so deserves. The prose in both biographies approaches a fictional quality, and Sakakini's mastery of the Arabic language is beyond doubt. In 1937, Sakakini won the first prize for the best short story writer in the Arab world from Al-Makshouf newspaper, but that didn't prove to men that she can write. She is one of the best and most capable, though least acknowledged writers in Arabic language. The sad fact is that with about 20 books to her name, there is not a single book in Arabic about Widat Sakakin. In her feminist treatise in Saf al-Mar'a, first of its kind in the Arab world, Sakakini confirms my reading of her novel Arwa bint al-Khatouf, that her literature, though about women, is addressed to both men and women, for only by reforming both sexes, a better word might finally emerge. She writes, this book is for women. They shall find in it what concerns them in their current lives, for young women to learn about the history of their mothers, and for sincere men to find in its pages the truth about women, away from what has been fabricated by women's enemies, away from the false accounts made deliberately to impede women's progress and undermine their objectives. There are many instances where a good word has pointed the way to the right path." End of quote. With all her good words, Vidal Sakakini did not set out on this course all by, her, all by herself. Other Arab women novelists were examining different aspects of Arab women's experiences, and their response was not too far removed from Sakakini's. In Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, Arab women novelists were making earnest endeavors to remold the image of women in the public mind and retrieve it from the curse of the body. The overall reaction was neither angry nor emotional. Rather, it was a sensitive examination of the gender roles and gender concepts in the Arab world. Novels about love, marriage, profession, and equality substantially agree that the construction of gender roles in the Arab world, in effect, erases women from social arena and denies them their most basic rights as human beings. Excuse me. I really feel very embarrassed with this. Never mind, you will bear with me. In 1953 and 1954, Habriya Muhammad from Iraq published two novels, Jarim Trajol, which means man's crime, and Man al-Jani, which means who is to blame, in which she exposed the way men rule like kings in Arab society, loving, marrying, deserting, abandoning, remarrying as they please. A few years later, the Syrian novelist Yaman Wailati published her first novel, Filayl, which means at night, you would be tickled to, see some, to hear some of the titles of uh, Arab women's writers. At night, I am with him, I am wild, I am unrealistic, I am mad, I am crazy, I am ignorant. You know, all to 
put them out of the social context and to allow them to express themselves the way they would like to express themselves. Even in 1985, Sahar Khalifi, a very prominent Arab woman novelist, Palestinian novelist, wrote a novel called him The Memoirs of an Unrealistic Woman. You know, we are unrealistic, so you know, forgive us, what, whatever we say. In which Noelati examines the fate of a talented woman who tries to achieve professional parity with men. Her heroine, whose name is not released in the novel, is a talented and ambitious student of music. Gifted and self-confident, the heroine tries to establish a working relationship with her elderly music teacher, whom she admires. But no sooner does he find himself alone with her than he starts to make advances to her and harasses her sexually. Wrapped in his own resentment for being rejected, um, the teacher fails her in the exam and ruins her future plans. She wakes up from a nightmare to find that she has lost her eyesight. She leaves the country and becomes a famous singer in Egypt. She is a masochist. Such a reading that has unfortunately influenced generations of students totally ignores what the novelist is trying to do. In this novel, Nuelati puts forward the case of an artistic talent trying to make her way in the world. She is subjected to sexual harassment, penalized professionally for resisting sexually, and her life is completely shattered because she has refused to prostitute her body in order to move on with her career. Her loss of eyesight is only metaphorical. It is intended to highlight the magnitude of her affliction. Even today, over 40 years after the publication of Noelati's novel, millions of women all over the world and in all kinds of professions still complain of sexual harassment at work. This is not a masochist novel at all. It is a balanced, composed, but daring cry for professional equality and parity. As the novel draws to a close, the heroine accidentally means her teacher's son. She gives him her diary and asks him to pass it on to his father. Acting on the premise that the sins of the fathers may be visited upon the sons, the son asks if there's anything she would like him to do. Her request was simple, to name his first daughter after him. One Arab man critic finds this a very stupid and naive request as a price for all her suffering and ordeal. Surely there's another reading to this end. By giving her name to the granddaughter of the man who ruined her career and effectively her life, the heroine has left a lamplight for future generations of women that the struggle against the curse of the body goes on, and that all forces, including the descendants of previous antagonists, will join the march. This novel disappeared quickly from the markets, went out of print, and was not ever printed again. A decade later, the author returned to the literary scene with a less direct literary genre, poetry. Fewer people read poetry, and fewer still understands what it actually says. 
Both the Lebanese writer Hind Salami in her novel Al-Hijab al-Mahtouk, which means the torn veil, and the Palestinian writer Fathiya Mahmoud al-Bata in her novel Muzakkarat Zaithi, which means false memoirs, second Sakakini's debut to educate men about women's character, to sift social caprices about women and establish a representative image of women that corresponds to the way they think and feel. As was the case in Arwa bint al-Khatoub, the targeted audience in both novels are men rather than women. And the objective is to change men's detrimental attitude towards women. Men at the end of these novels realize that they were the victims of entrenched misconceptions of women they had failed to question. The atmosphere prevailing in Salama's novel is reminiscent of the one we had met before in Jane Austen's novels. Salama has Austen's insight to her upper middle class. She understands the, sh- the social codes, the peculiarity of this class's culture, and the position of women in it without Austen's mastery of the art of fiction. Salama's Arabic sentence is subtle, smooth, and at times moving but the course she takes in developing her characters is not always convincing. Al-Hijab al-Mahtouk may be read at more than one level, each of which lends force to the author's endeavor to to promote a better understanding between the sexes. At each point, two different perspectives, two different approaches, and two different interpretations of women's actions are presented. Women in this novel are neither saints nor devils, but the natural products of their social conditions. Madeline, for example, a young girl taken out of a convent to find herself an heiress of a huge fortune, immediately joins the Lebanese velvet society with all its predilections for fads and fashions in the 60s. Prior to her marriage from her beloved poet Fayyad, she had a relationship with a cousin whom she did not love and therefore refused to marry. Her cousin was unable to understand how could she refuse him after he had penetrated her sexually. The norm is for the man to reject the woman who surrenders her body to him before marriage. But for both Madeline and Dream in Kuliyat Khuri Ayyamahu hold the view that when they give men their bodies rather than their souls, they would have given them their second best Me. This is not the way men feel. Men assume that once they penetrate women sexually, they have conquered them and possessed them, body and soul. Madeline herself is a product of such a relationship in which her father refuses to get married to his pregnant mistress. Her mother dies in childbirth and she is taken to a convent. It seems likely that Madeline's mother had to die so early in the novel because of the unbridgeable dichotomy between an unmarried single mother who seems quite happy with herself and a society that has no place for her at all. The author's delineation of her at the beginning of the novel denotes that she is a woman who appreciates herself regardless of the social odds against her. In their final meeting between the mother and Hani, Hani arrives only to announce his plan to get married to his chaste cousin although she was pregnant from him, leaving Lamia pregnant with his baby. Despite all the odds against her, Lamia refuses to have an abortion. 
because she believes in what she's doing. He gives her some money and never she's here again. But having had no children from his wife, which became problematic, late in his life, he seeks his illegitimate daughter, madly, and leaves her all his money. What is to be noticed here is that his wife does not inherit him because she does not give him any children. After his death, she even had to leave her home and go back to her family. Thus, the three women suffer from different kinds of displacements because of a patriarchal system that circumscribes women in multiple ways. The, the discrepancy between the personal life men lead and the social image they try hard to preserve sharply contrasts with women's courage to live up to their convictions, even when they have to face social disapproval and marginalization as a consequence. I think I'll move on from this novel. The important point is that at the end of the novel, Fayyad realizes that their marriage broke up because his sister made a ploy. His wife, Madeline, goes to a convent. He tries to get her back. She refuses to go back to him, with him. She says to him, it's okay, I have found my peace. He leaves her, looking at the convent back and mumbling to himself, women, Whatever your lives might be, some of you remain spotless and loyal, devout and merciful. You are the source of compassion, of love, affection, and good deeds. Like flowers, you infuse the world with fragrant perfume, and like horizons, you grant us clarity and space. Though there are some among you who undermine relationship and impair human happiness, it was his sister, after all, who plotted against them and put their marriage in jeopardy. What has been achieved here is a questioning of the randomly uttered, readily accepted generalizations about women. This is precisely the point that Sakakini was keen to highlight in her novel, Arwa. In her epigraph to the novel, she writes, not all women are the same. Some of them are flowers, others are thorns. I, I'm really struck by the need that most of these writers feel to give a different image of women. It, it seems such a pressing need because the image of women was so distorted that all the novels tried to portray to men that women are, after all, different from what men conceive them to be. I don't have very long to go if you bear with me. What, the, what this group of novels stipulate is the injustice latent in the perpetuated misconception of women as potential adulteresses. The theme is not new, of course. Shakespeare's Desdemona was one such victim. But this erroneous victimization of women is deemed by the novelists to be at the root of most social evils. Novelists demonstrated in different ways that changing men's attitude is the first step in bringing about social reform. What is notable is that despite all the suffering inflicted on women heroines, there is no trace of hatred or even anger in response. As champions of a greater cause than personal salvation, they all offer genuine forgiveness and the ability to forget lifelong ordeals. The important point is to provide an insight into women's modes of thought, women's perspectives, and women's vision. 
One man who seems to be the product rather than the subject of such an endeavor is Dr. Ahmed in An'am al-Masalmi al-Hubb wal-Wahal, which means love and mob. He is in love with a woman colleague who refuses to enter a relationship with him because she has been betrayed before by a man to whom she was devoted and therefore refuses to expose herself to the possibility of a similar experience. What I found interesting about this novel is that it seems to provide a logical sequel to the novels just discussed above. The starting point for the male protagonist here is his profound belief in parity and companionship between men and women. In fact, the novel starts where Sakakin is Arwa ibn al-Khattub, Salam is al-Hijab al-Mahtouk, and al-Bat'iyya muzakkarat Zaifa ended. In our first encounter with the male protagonist, we discover that he sees in women something more than their sexual body. In a letter to his friend, he writes, I used to deny Eve intellectual parity with men. I used to see her as a pretty, silly doll. Getting to know her closely has liberated me from such terrible attitudes and prompted me to respect her. I wonder who has changed, I or she. You tell me about the time, okay? He describes this change in him as a triumph over his own weakness. Having overcome the human weakness in me and having failed to find a male mentor, I decided to be the pioneering example in my attitude to women. Inas Ahmed's beloved and colleague is, on the other hand, beset by a different set of problems. As an only child, everyone felt that she should have been a boy. Shouldn't we have all been boys? So that she could inherit her father's fortune and name. She says, at home, on the streets, and at people's houses, I hear people mumbling, if only she were a boy. Later on, she detects another reason why her family didn't want a girl. She says, addressing her deceased father, may God bless your soul, you didn't want a girl because you didn't want your daughter to be a prey to wild beasts. May God bless you and forgive me. At another point, she argues, instead of dreading the birth of a girl, why don't men change their attitudes to women and stop treating them as sex objects, as all women are their sisters, wives, or mothers? Being acutely aware of her status as less than an equal in a rigid patriarchal society, she decides to command her society's respect through carving for herself a masculine mask and denying herself all expressions of femininity that are natural, natural to her heart and mind. Quote, I am a woman who wanted to be man's equal, so I have to suppress all my feelings and smother my emotions and live a dreary life. I am a woman but can't lead a woman's life. I look like a man, but I don't feel like one. I am always concerned that my smile might be slightly broader than expected, that I might have stood with a male colleague one minute more than I should. Eventually, they call me a hermit and a Sufi. I am neither. I am full of feminine passion and feeling, but I want to keep my self-esteem and pride so badly. Thus, in her endeavor to reject the denigrated social status of women, she had to reject what was most precious and essential to her 
as a female, her feminine emotions and natural feelings. Dignity and respectability are male traits, and in order to acquire them, women have to assume men's characters. Another Arab woman writer, Suad Zuhair from Egypt, in her novel, The Confessions of a Masculine Woman, would also deals with this problem. How could we be allowed professional equality while we remain women? Simple as it might seem, this deeply entrenched concept is detrimental to women's very existence. At the basis of it is the assumption that feminine is the antithesis of all professional and productive domains. Hence, masculinity becomes prerequisite for any meaningful activity. This is why feminism could only be credible when it means that women could function on their own terms as women. They could enjoy their own vision and their own perspectives, which, though different, might well prove to be as valid, as useful, as a man's. In other words, instead of being shaped by the already dominant male culture, women should bring in their female culture, from which both men and women might very well benefit. In this sense, a masculine mask is diametrically opposed to all genuine feminist values. I'm almost there, if you bear with me. All an Arab critic can see in Inas, whom I discussed earlier, is a sick, masochistic, complicated person who enjoys torturing herself and rejects love for no obvious reason. He sees in this novel an excellent example of women's literature that reflects the perverted psychologies of women. What the heroine is trying to stress is that she has achieved professional equality, but only at the expense of her precious female feelings and values. What she wants is a place where she can be both a professional and a woman without being chased by the curse of inferiority as soon as she removes the masculine mask. As early as 1961, in Amr Salmi, in this novel, searches for a place for women to function as women rather than as men and tries to liberate femalehood from its second-rate, second-class tag. Excuse me. This realist novel is a novel of protest, such as Ana Ahya by Leila Balbati, Ayamahu by Kolyat Khuri. But the protest is not an active one. It is a protest of preserving the right to opt out of a humiliating social system. It is a kind of social passive resistance. It seems as if the author did not quite make up her mind what technique she was going to use. And then I go on to talk about the technique. By opting out of the marital system, going back to the convent, or facing their own death happily, these heroines are making a statement. They are protesting against a social system in which women have no place to function on their own terms. The phenomena of heroines in women's novels committing suicide migrating or opting out of the social system altogether does not mean, as most Arab critics said, that the heroines ended up where they started, quote-unquote, or that the novelists are convinced that this is the logical result for such an odd behavior. The problem is that such misinterpretations 
are passed on from one generation of students to another who code their supervisors, sometimes without reading the actual works. Women novelists have often followed their heroines to commit suicide, have often, I'm sorry, allowed their heroines to commit suicide when there seemed to be no way out, just as women in real life have, much more than men, resorted to suicide to express their ultimate objections to the circumstances of their lives. Women in Central Asia are still today expected, even encouraged, to burn themselves to death as a means of cleansing social shame. As the heroine of Kate Chopin in Awakening committed suicide in the late 19th century, the heroine of Eveline Arcade, Lexize, still finds no way out but to commit suicide. A mature, aware, and strong woman, E, in Lexize, still surrenders her pregnant body to the sea after family, lover, husband, and society have crushed every living nerve in her. E looks at the woman, the children, the sea. She is not able to swallow what she has on her plate. A constriction in her throat makes eating impossible. She looks at the ship and the passengers climbing the gangway. Will she at last succeed in coming to the end of the road and Noor, the name of another woman? Will she truly find the sunlight? How often women must one cross the sea to understand, she wonders. Indeed, how many generations of women would have to despair to the point of choosing death over life before we begin to understand what they are talking about? After losing the last shred of hope, after a history of resistance, defiance, struggle, and sacrifice, E, without the least hesitation, quote, goes into the waters which close over her. She goes to her rest. She goes to the silence. The important difference between E's suicide and the other suicides encountered in earlier novels is that E has opened the way to other women and left the banner with Noor. Noor in Arabic means light. Noor says, I wish she may be proud of me, for she has saved me. Thanks to her, I have seen the sunshine and the light. Thanks to her, I shall never wear the stifling mask before my face. I was called Noor at my birth, but without her, I would never know the light of day. I must live to help my other sisters. That's what she would have wished me, isn't it? When I asked Evelyn Akkad, why couldn't E have lived? She confirmed my reading of her novel and added, she committed suicide instead of me. I was on the verge of committing suicide myself. And by writing this novel and making E do it, I seem to have saved myself. I wonder how many women novelists feel exactly the same way as Evelyn Akkad. Thank you very much. Sorry for my glasses. I it has explained that I have an accident and I Maybe hate myself for wearing them. 
Yes, please. Yes, I was struck by you saying early on that uh, there were a number of writers who still resisted the classification of mm -hmm. women writers, yeah. and I'd like you to speak to that. And then the second thing that struck me was, uh, was you mentioned Doris Lessing mm -hmm. had written a preface mm -hmm. to First among Sufis. First among Sufis. Yeah, yes. Um, she is a woman writer who resists that kind of classification. Uh -huh. And I was curious to know in that preface whether she linked herself no. to yeah. the okay. to the Sufi part of it or to the fact that it's no. a woman who was a Sufi. Okay. So it's really two parts of okay. it. Well, I, I think Arab woman writers still resist the... Um, name woman's literature or the phrase woman's literature because it is used by all critics as a pejorative. And uh, one woman writer said, I would not like my literature to be considered a second-rate literature because woman literature is considered a second-rate literature. Another woman critic said that she would not want to use the term because her, her argument makes more sense because writing for women is a kind of survival. And they start writing in order to put themselves into the mainstream. So if we go back and classify their literature as women's literature, we are undermining their objective before they start. So she is taking it as, and, and this is actually all in this paper, but because it's 35 pages, I couldn't read it. Uh, so it, it's a long one. And, and I, I wonder whether Doris Lessing has something in mind, you know, something equivalent that the classification of women's literature, you know, as something less, or so many women are afraid of being um, less than men. And the fact that so many, I mean, our best novelist, Ghadir Samad, the all her heroes are men. They were heroines, I would have called them heroines. You know, and she says, I am Mustafa, I am Khalid, all these men, but not any woman. Because the moment she puts a woman's heroine, then she is divided into a subwriter. And the trick works. Now there are seven books about Ghadassana because she deals with men. And and although she says, I am in these men, but, but in fact she is not using women as heroine. And men love her because of that. So it, it is really um, a way of combating you know what 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 is in the market. My argument is that. Our literature is good. Women's literature is very good. There is no reason to reject the term women's literature. It, we have to make men see that our literature is as good as theirs. It, it expresses a different perspective. It makes the world a better place. It is as essential as their literature. So there's no need to say, well, I'm not a woman critic or I'm not a woman literature. Even any critic who deals with women writing is a secondary critic. He is not in the Street. But I hope there will come the day when you know men cannot ignore this literature anymore. And if you see how much of it is, is neglected, and you have to do how do you have literature if you don't try to allow it, if you don't notice it, then it doesn't exist. And yet they're published. They're published and they disappear. It's like that most of the women go and pay money to publish their own words. That, that's what happens in the Arab world. You know? Not only they don't make money, they go and put money into it, they face social problems. They have a cause, otherwise why should they write? Uh, as for Doris Lessing, she did not make any mention of women's literature. She talked about Sufis and women as Sufis. So I wonder, you know. Um, Is that in English? Into English. 
It was published in 1988 in London, first among Sufis by Widat Sakakini. Um, I forget the name of the publisher, but I could supply it if you want to, because I have the book. I, I would appreciate feedback. Please think of me. This is the, the, I am still writing, you know, my draft, and I would really love your criticism as hard as it could be, no problem. Saleh, along with many other, most other Arab male writers, is sexist. No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, no, no. Saleh? No, yes, I said Tayyip yeah. but he is showing how the character, Mustafa Sa'in, puts mirrors and imagines that because he's penetrating an English woman, he's penetrating the whole class. What Tayyip Saleh is trying to do is to criticize two kinds of colonization. British colonization and the colonization of the body. So Tayyip Saleh is not sexist at all. He is offering a criticism. Okay, that's that's oh. really what I wanted to clarify. Yeah, no, no. no, he is not sexist at all. I would have a real problem. No, 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 no. I would not say that. I, 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 but so many critics read the novel without, without talking about the sexual colonization, which in Tayyip Saleh's opinion is as dangerous as the British colonization. Because, because it just distorts the whole psyche of, of the character. Well, it's the same thing in a, in a way, because of course he's ironizing this, the Orientalist text symbol system, which was geared towards saying, let's protect our women and somehow symbolize yeah. you know, civilization yeah. itself, yeah. Western civilization itself. Yeah. And I think Stalin yeah. is just yeah. turning that around. No, I'm just explaining that how, how, you know, se how sexual behavior is telling of, of other social and political Discipline. So who would you say are, are writers like Tayyip Saleh who are able to... Najib, Najib Mahfouz as well, yes. Najib Mahfouz is, is someone who really dealt with it very well. And the Tahir bin Jalloun, yeah. uh, he yeah. also, especially in the Sand Child, he dealt with the problem of the masculine woman who has who can't function in society unless she wears a masculine mask, which is very important from a feminist perspective. So there are quite few Arab men writers who dealt with the problem. But too much time has been devoted to them. I might as well devote my time to the women writers. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Um, whenever you said Arab critics, from your tone, it was clear it was a man. Uh, exactly. Um, so we have no, men, no women critics. There are no women critics, but you are a woman critic, and you were evidently a very successful academic. So Thank I you. wonder if you would, this is not, this is not a feminine question. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about your own situation as a critic and as a, as a teacher and a professor? Uh, how, how, what is it? Is it just, are you unusual? No, 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 I'm not unusual. I'm quite a usual person. I'm just... No, we I have, meant in, in, in your in, profession. In my approach, I, I think in my approach to women's writing, probably, because um, we have women critics, for example, we have the Latifi Zayat. What happens in the Arab world is that most critics are professors at universities. You know, we all are there. And the problem is that they, we breed generations and generations of students, and we give them our attitudes. And therefore, I have two MA written by women on women's writings, one from Cairo University, one from Damascus University. 
none of them said a new sentence about women's writing. They were also indulged quoting, quoting their supervisors, you know, because uh, they wanted to prove they are good students and to echo what their supervisors uh, did. So we have, for example, Latifa Zayat in Egypt, who studied the position of women in men's writing, which is very good, uh, and, and she did a very good study. Um, my work on, on Arab women in both right and left-handed um, made me believe, I interviewed in this book women from four different Arab countries, from Syria, Lebanon, Algeria, uh, and Palestinian women in the diaspora. And after I interviewed about 200 women who told me their stories as they would never tell a husband or a brother, I came out from this experience extremely proud of my being a woman, extremely proud of my sex, and wanting to do, to devote my life to the service of women. And I felt they have so much to offer, so much to say. If I am political and I love my country, then I should fight for the inclusion of 50% of my country. And, and this is my perspective. No, it has never been difficult for me the, the, to have an important position at university. It was not difficult for me to publish. It was, um, I am a married woman. I have two daughters. My husband is looking after them this year while I'm on a Fulbright. If you want education in the Arab world, you can have it. So long as you don't, so long as you stay in line. You know, for example, I got a PhD, but I was not expected to choose my own husband. No, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the dilemma, that social attitudes did not change. And this is why I find the writing of these women is so important, because we have women professors, doctors, engineers. Once we leave the office and we go home, we are women, we are worried about the salad and the tabbouleh and all the rest of it, and we are second-class citizens, and we don't dare say a thing, and we are so happy when our husbands smile, and all the rest of it. So social attitudes did not change. That, that, that's the problem. I think I've been lucky by having a father who promoted me a lot, but then didn't talk to me for six years because I got married to the man I wanted to get married to. <laughs> and, and my husband supports me. I am not, you know, I am quite, I mean, to say that I'm having an easy life is really an understatement because my criticism of women, I am already labeled as a second-class critic because I, I, I criticize women literature and people like Khatib and those they don't want to talk to me because they talk about the mainstream, you know, and we are not the mainstream. What I want to do is to put women in the mainstream and shame them of their ignorance of women's works. That's what I want to do, really, because these works are so important and most of them don't read them. They repeat each other's judgment without reading them, without seeing what, what, what is happening. So what I would like to do is to introduce this and to get it to university curricula and say this is important. If you don't know it, then you're not a good critic. That, that, that's what I would like to do. Yes, please. That's actually my question. Uh, you said that you need some help for you. Uh, I missed the first five minutes. This book that you're writing, yeah. uh, is it for our women, our university students, or is it for us? Well, I, I'm, I hope to be writing it for both. I'm writing it in English simply because my computer doesn't take Arabic now. So I'm writing it in English at the moment because I've got a Fulbright here 
and I'm working in English, and I would like also to introduce Arabic literature to Western readers, not just crisis-oriented knowledge about the Arab world. I think this is the kind of work we should know each other through. That's, that's one objective. Of course, I would like the book to be translated immediately to Arabic and, uh, and to be you know, introduced to Arab audience. This book is different. This book was written in English, and it is, it is not translated to Arabic until this day, although it was published two years ago. Um, there is too much truth in it. I'm just curious, um, do you have any specific questions that you want to ask us? Yeah, how does that, how does that feel? I mean, you know, you, you, imagine that you've got a book, and this is a section of my book. How, what, how, does that make sense? I mean, does well, that... Well, that's what I'm, since I don't know what comes before and what comes after, the only thing I can talk to is about the moment in it. Uh-huh. And um, I think... What I'm interested in is what I don't know, yeah. obviously. Yeah. That wealth of information, including the subject of, or subjects of these books and how women are treated, etc. Yeah. Now, that means the approach is what? Historical, anthropological, uh, literary, whatever. Now, then there is a second part, which is. Um, Personal opinion yeah. on what you have just said. Yeah. Now that's where I'm not sure. I would much rather let the situation speak for itself. So I, I, am, I am too much in it. You I, have to say no, but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I Mostly know. Because I want your opinion. I live here. Yeah, and I know that already yeah. from so many years before, yeah. and I'm convinced. Yeah, and I don't need to be convinced, but. Uh, there's a whole other world somewhere else that doesn't. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, so that it's just my, you know. Yeah, yeah. I prefer when I myself find out for myself. Yeah. Uh, and I think simply by stating uh, some of the facts, yeah. I think it's yeah. not. It's I, I think that that's just personal opinion. Yeah, right? okay. Well, the, fact, the, the other question is interesting that what kind of book I'm trying to write. Yeah. I'm trying to write a literary criticism of these novels that will be based in the cultural context mm-hmm. of, of Arabic literature and would reflect on women's issues, not just in, in Arabic literature. So I am trying to see Arab women's writings within the context of their culture and try to make the allusions to what women are doing in other cultures, in other literatures. So oh, you could say it's a cross literary cultural study. Oh, this is my intention. Uh-huh. You know, not a strict textual literary criticism. I don't believe that there's literature here and there's life there. I believe writers write because they are too concerned about life. And therefore, when we understand their works, we have to relate it back to life. That's my approach. Okay, so it's good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I like your voice. I, I like the passion. And also, I think because this literature is so strange or foreign yeah. to us, we need that voice Thank you know, you. as a guide yeah. uh, to understand it. Well, it is foreign also to Arab literature. Most of the novels I talked about here 
are not available in the markets. You do not see them. People are not treating them. So it is not just foreign to you. It's foreign to Arab readers too. And therefore, I feel the obligation to put these works in context and to say what has been said about them, what these works are trying to say, and, and do them justice and construct them. I mean, obviously, this is just a section, but what I'm trying to do is to construct all the novels you know, that had been written from 1860 until 1990. So I might finish in the year 2000, <laughs> you know, and, and put them in, in their cultural and literary context. Yes, there are two people who are there. Yes. Uh, well, the only thing is I would like a little bit more, like we were all curious about how they were published. Yeah. How yeah. you happen yeah. to read yeah. I said That kind of information yeah. Yeah. would really be interesting. Yeah. I like your voice. Thank you. I'm interested in their writing. I'm also interested in their writing as opposed to their lives. Yeah. How their writing affected their lives. Yeah. In other words, what publishing these books meant to their personal lives. If, because yeah. this is a culture yeah. I know nothing about. Yeah, so all right. that information, yeah. Yeah. I would like, but I also like the plot and I like the description of the works because I'm beginning to get a feeling yeah. for what they have to prove as yeah. opposed to what we have to prove. Yeah. But as I said, I would just like some more background yeah. about what being a writer means. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, I'd just like to say that. Uh, yes, thank you very much. For thank you. The, for what you brought to us, I think it's an enormous amount of wealth and uh, it's something you consider. I'd like to read the women of whom you're speaking and some of the men too. Uh, but I would like to know uh, something a little off from the subject matter, and that is how much of the Arab women's writings deal with working class women. You see, I get the impression that these women are something which are not like me, you know, or, you know, <coughs> borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Or like me, for example. Uh, I'm just wondering about, um, are these middle class, upper class women that you're, that you have in these, yeah. uh, you know, novels? Actually, I should speaking. start taking notes. Okay. Yes, yeah. please. Uh, have you finished? Uh, well, that's one question. Yeah. That's maybe not. But I should want to hear something about, you know, how the Arab people you know, in various countries actually live. Do the women go out to work during the day? Uh, what about those women? Are they Nowadays, I mean, for example, Raja Saman has her own 
publishing house, and they have their own presses, and then everybody wants you know, to do them a favor and write about their works. I mean, it works just like everywhere else. So, uh, and, and one, one major criticism I got for my book is that I interviewed illiterate women, women from villages, women from working class, and so that did not suit the velvet society, you know? And, and why do you tell the West that we have these people? We should be all in salons and yeah, yeah. sitting on streets, you know? That, yeah. That's what we should tell you. We are. So the class question does get, does get into it, just as, as the gender question. Sorry, I already forgot your second point. Uh, you asked me the class one, and then there was another point. Oh, well, politically active. Yeah, politically active, yes. I, I want to co uh, comment on this that um, Syria, for example, as an Arab country, is ruled by uh, a Ba'ath Arab Socialist Party that claims to be secular and that um, guarantees equality between men and women. What you have to see there is what we see in America is the difference between rhetoric and reality. In rhetoric, they can be active, they can be president, go and be president. Who says no to you? You know, go and, and nominate yourself. But in reality, where are women? How many women do we have in the Senate? We have 20% we have women MPs. They are active to a certain level. You know, we have one ambassador, one minister, symbolic, you know, decoration there, but not really active. The gentleman there, so I don't, I'm not accused of being anti-male. <laughs> that is, where do you see the main force coming that will promote women's equality in the Arab world? I, th I see the main force coming from women. And I think, um, now, for example, Algerian women opted out of the political system in 1962 because they could not put in their constitution. And in this book, I interview women fighters who lived on the mountains for six years, and they stayed completely out of the political system. They refused to compromise. Now, with the multi-party multi system emerging in Algeria, with the more process of democratization, women, I went to Algeria in 1989, are not only forming their own political society, but they are getting men under their umbrella as a counterforce to Muslim fundamentalism. So I, and the only way I can see it is that for women to go out and do their job and thrust themselves into the political arena and show their perspectives, what they should do in life is what these women did in literature to show what they can offer, you know, their, their vision, their perspective. But if I were a man with my food cooked, with my iron shirt, with my shirt iron, with my children brought up, I'm not going to give that up for anybody. Yeah. So why should men give that up? I think women have to go out and do it. That, that's the only way. And I, I see Arab women, I really do see Arab women as a salvation for Arab culture. I really do. I think they have something very important to offer. And I just hope that they would be brave enough to offer it and save the Arab world. Uh, what's up the money to have these? I mean, if there's a woman's publishing company, where does the money come from? She's rich. And where does she get that? I mean, who's she inheriting? Yeah, so I mean, it's still bad for the, the one who's controlling the money. No, she's controlling the money. I mean, oh. now she is. Oh yeah, the Rajasthan and Kulet Suri, and you know they they have their own, but 
her husband has a publishing house, but she does not publish in her husband's house. She publishes in her own house. So it is Radis and man publication. It's not in man. But, but the problem is that these women are taken out to be the exception. They are you know, taken out of the mainstream and said, well, she is just so clever and so great and so rich and so wonderful. But all other women aren't. The we have the exact same situation here. And I mean, years ago, Mary Ellman wrote a book called Thinking of Women, which dealt with just exactly the same things that you're discussing. I wrote a piece called Stereotypes and Women Artists, where I'm yeah. quoting Mary Ellman. You're doing the same thing in terms of, of Arab women. Of Arab women yeah. uh, and the point is that many of us, we haven't progressed up to that point yet in this culture here in the United States. Well, um, I, well, and it, you know, I think what you're doing is an absolute agreement with your attitude, but again, we're up I, against an economic situation. Yeah, but, but I women might be at an advantage. I mean, I can't see why they should wait, you know, for Western women to win and then they win. They could have had an example. <laughs> <laughs> where Arab women are needed. And we have a long history where they were doing every single thing. I mean, they were, they were writers, they were poets, they were fighters for 14 centuries. So why suddenly we should be locked in home, you know? And why only at times of war they discover us to be brave and tolerant and fantastic? Why not at times of peace? We, we, we come out and offer what we have. told you like Saudi Arabia where women are, you know, can't Yes, this is one point I wanted to say. You Saudi Arabia hosts 4 million Arab people. The Arab population is 160 million people. And if you go in the Arab country, you would find it's extremely different from Saudi Arabia. It really is very different. This is the problem, you see, that the stereotypes about Arab women come through Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. And I'm going to tell you this. One ABC correspondent, Tim McQuarrie, does that sound familiar? He interviewed the Emir of Kuwait on the 7th of March at 7 o'clock on ABC radio and asked him whether he's going to give the vote to Kuwaiti women. And the Emir of Kuwait said, yes, we're thinking about it. And Tim McQuarrie said, of course, in no Muslim country, women can vote. You wouldn't have thought he had seen Pakistani women bringing Benazir Bhutto to the premiership, wouldn't you? I think this is double-edged. Double to say that Arab women or Muslim women are so down, and to say to American women, you see, you are so lucky. You have so many things to be grateful for. Other women have nothing, which is not true. So it is, so it is against all women, not just against Arab women. It's against American women, too. And, and so we should really you know, get in touch culturally and, and eliminate all, all, all these stereotypes against each other. I, I just bring to your attention or ask you if you're aware of Atif Farraj's work. I am very aware of Atif Farraj's work, extremely. And he believes that every woman wrote the first novel, a hair biography, and that's finished. And stop and stop, like and, the and, and all of them now have at least five, six novels to their names after his excellent <coughs> prediction. Yes, I'm very aware of that. He was true about Layla Ba'al-Baki. He was not true about Layla Ba'al-Baki. She wrote Ali Hanman Sukha. Why should he only write five masterpieces? 